There's a saying that we have about growing up to be just like your parents. My guess is that you've met some adults' friend, some adult friends' parents, and thought, hmm, I see exactly where she gets her friendliness or her hospitality or her sense of humor or her thoughtfulness. I've seen and heard of stories where children were separated from one parent or the other from birth, but when they're reunited, they realize they walk in the same way or they have the same nervous habit that they both do. Um, in fact, when my stepdad first met me, the first thing he said to my mom was, how is it possible for her to be so much like you? It's true. From the way that we laugh down to the way that we cross our feet when we sit, there's no mistaking that I am my mother's daughter. This isn't just true for earthly parents. It should be true in the spiritual realm as well. In tonight's text, we are going to talk about how true, transformed children of God must walk in such a way that there is no mistaking that we are children of our Father. Our theme for the passage of scripture we will be looking at tonight is walk in love, light, and wisdom, as is fitting for a beloved daughter of God. Our text opens up saying that we ought to be imitators of God as beloved children. Children who have loving parents want to be like them, don't they? They study what their parents do so that they might copy them later. I already see this in Ella. When she's done eating lunch or breakfast, I go get a broom and I sweep up her mess. So now when she's done with lunch, she runs and gets her toy broom. She's watched me, she wants to copy me. Children want to be like their parents. But more than that, they're natured like their parents. What I didn't teach Ella to do is stand close to me and observe a room before she goes and engages with anybody else. But she's natured like me. She's my daughter, so she's a little bit timid. So in the same way, when God made us a new creation in Christ, we became his children with a nature like his. Remember that just last week, or two weeks ago, in chapter 4, we talked about how we are now new creatures who must take off our old selves and put on our new selves. New selves, which according to verse 24 of chapter 4, are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It is our new nature to be like him. Even so, we are commanded to be imitators of God. So this means that it is something that we have to put some effort into to consider how we should do it and to actually do it. So how practically can we live our lives like we are children of God? We have it in the text. Christ is our example. How does verse 2 tell us to walk? In love, but how? As Christ did. What kind of love does Christ display for us to follow? As we see in the following verses, Christ's love is a sacrificial and giving love. Christ's love is expressed most prominently to us in his sacrificial giving of his life in our place, which of course we have referenced again when in verse 2 Paul says, he loved us and gave himself for us. That is the kind of love that we are supposed to walk in. Christ provides both the example we are to follow as well as the very ability to live as God's children in this world. Because Christ loved us and gave himself for us, we are now able to live for him and give our lives up for others. 
Jesus makes it clear that we are to follow his example. Listen to his words from John 15, 12 through 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lays down his life for his friends. So if we want to imitate God with Christ as our example, we must sacrificially love others. I'll expand more on this idea later, but for now, let's hold on to the idea that Christ is our example and the reason that we are able to live lives of sacrifice that are pleasing to God. Without Christ giving himself up on the cross in our place, becoming that acceptable sacrifice on our behalf before God, we wouldn't know how or be able to love others in this way. So Christ's sacrificial love is our example of how we should live. Then in verse 3, we have this contrasting word, but. So now we're about to be told in the following verses of opposite examples or negative examples, how we should not live. There are some things that Paul even says should not be mentioned among the saints. Sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. We know what these things are, so I'm not going to spend time defining and discussing these things. But rather, I want to discuss what we are supposed to act like instead. So what I found curious here when I was studying is that the positive commands in this section, which we find in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 4, tell us to love in the way that Christ loved and to express gratitude. Those are the positive commands we have in this kind of sea of negative commands. So at first I'm looking at these and I'm like, I'm not seeing how these are opposites or how doing one helps me not do the other. Um, so, but then if you think about it more, could it be that if we were loving and grateful, we wouldn't behave in the ways that we are told that we should not? <clears throat> Excuse me. If we love others in the way that Christ loved us, we give of ourselves to seek what is best for them. To borrow some language from a good friend of mine, Christ-like love is others-centered, not self-centered. Other-centered love seeks what is best for others in accordance to God's word. That means we love others by seeking their good as God defines good because any other definition of good is flawed and unhelpful. And we can see that, that the examples we are not to follow are totally self-centered acts based on the criteria of love that we have um, to be other-centered, right? It's the opposite. If a person commits adultery or is sexually impure, they are serving themselves and doing something God calls evil. They desire to please themselves not to honor God or seek true godly good for anyone else involved. Along these same lines, we are also warned against being covetous. A covetous person is only concerned about themselves and what they want. A covetous person is angry when God gives good gifts to others because they are greedy to have those things for themselves. Would it be possible to love sacrificially and be covetous of what our brother or sister has? No. Seeking their good means rejoicing when God chooses to give them a good gift. It is a self-focused love that would covet your neighbor or sister's good gift instead of re rejoicing with them. 
Paul then talks about crude joking and silly talk, saying that these things are out of place, and contends <clears throat> with the second positive command that we should instead give thanks. That's in verse 4. If we are thankful to God, then we aren't perverting the gifts that he has given, but we accept them in the context that he provides. If we are thankful, we don't envy our sisters when they receive good gifts. If we are thankful for what we have, we will see God as a good father who gives us all that we need. If we are thankful, we are also speaking of the things that he is doing, of the things that he has done, of the glories of his truth. If I'm filling my mouth with thanksgiving for the things that God has done and all that he has given, then there won't be room for crude joking or selfish talk or foolish talk. We will believe that what God calls good is good and what he calls evil is evil. We will not fill our time or our mouths with perversions, but rather out of love for God and others, we will speak to build others up. Then we come to this talk about who does and doesn't have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Those who are sexually immoral, impure, covetous, or idolaters, these people do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Why? Because they bear a family resemblance, but not to God. They are children of disobedience and bear a family resemblance of their father, the devil. If we are living like this, let that be an a warning to us to examine ourselves. Such things ought not come from God's children for whom he has an inheritance, but instead characterizes those who deserve wrath. But we are in Christ. So just like chapter 2 told us, we are no longer children of disobedience destined for wrath. And this brings us to our second section, that we must walk as children of light. The main point of this portion of text from verse 7 to 14 is that we have been transformed not only from children of wrath to beloved children, but that we've been transformed from darkness to light. Notice that it doesn't say that we shine light as though it's only something we do. We are light. When we became united with Christ, we became light in the world even as he is light. Notice verse 8. We were darkness. We are now light in Christ. Doesn't verse 8 remind you of chapter 2? My last lesson when we were discussing how we were once dead in sins, but now we are alive at Christ. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. We have more to add. One time we were dead women walking in darkness. But now we are alive in Christ, and furthermore, we are light in Christ. Remember that we are now into the portion of Ephesians in the last three chapters, where we're talking how to practically live in light of all of the glorious truths that Paul shared in the first half of the letter. We have been united to Christ, and we must act like it. Yes, sisters, being united with Christ means that we are now light as he is. What does it mean to walk in light? It means we don't partner or dwell on the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather we try to discern God's will. We are told not to partner with darkness in verse 7. We are then told not to participate in the fruitless works of darkness also in verse 11. The works of darkness are worthless, 
and bring no good about for anyone involved. Notice how this is directly contrasted with the fruit of light, which is good and right and true. Walking in the light brings about good fruit, righteousness, and truth. These things are beneficial to everyone and bring blessing. These are the things that we should be filled with and characterized by, not darkness or evil deeds. We are not even to be partners with those who work with the deeds of darkness. Those who speak with empty words about worldly things and practice the sorts of things that our first section says we shouldn't even mention. We're probably pretty comfortable with the idea of not doing the things on the list, but what about hinting at them or partnering with those who'd practice such things? And how might we do that? I'm not gonna gossip or tear others down, but I think it's kind of funny to listen to it. I'm not gonna be sexually immoral, but I enjoy watching movies that celebrate sexual immorality. We so often turn a blind eye when we don't want to be bothered with awkwardness of addressing it or allow things to happen because we find them entertaining or they in some way benefit us. The point Paul is making is that we aren't to be associated with darkness at all. Instead, we should try to discern what the will of God is, as verse 10 tells us. And we can be certain that it has nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. We are children of the light, and when we partner with darkness, that light cannot shine and produce its intended fruit. Let us care be careful as we walk, then, to consider what the will of God is, what will bring about the fruit of goodness and righteousness and truth, and live in that way. Secondly, walking in the light means, or walking as light, I should say, means we expose the works of darkness. How does walking in the light expose works of darkness? Have you ever had someone be offended by the godly manner in which you live? For example, someone mocks you that you don't join in and complaining about your boss when all of your other coworkers are. Or maybe you refuse to go to an event when you know that they're celebrating things that God calls evil, and your friends tease you saying that you're holier than thou, or something along those lines. Their offense and lashback towards you is in part because you are shining a light on their sin. You're exposing it, just by living rightly where they are not. We see over and over again in the word that sinners hate light and love darkness. Light exposes the folly of their ways and causes them to question the way that they are living. And that's not a pleasant experience. They don't want to come to terms with the fact that there is a holy God that they must answer to. So as Romans 1 tells us, they suppress the truth. Shining light on that is uncomfortable. But that is in part what being the light of the world means. Living as children of light also means that we expose darkness by verbally telling the truth about the darkness. When our brother or sister is in sin, we expose it, of course. We have plenty of texts telling us to do so. We know that there shouldn't be a hint of evil things among us as saints. And when there is, we must shed light on it and expose what they are doing. That's part of why Paul warns us not to have a hint of these things or to listen to those who do it, because it can happen. It can creep in. And if we hide sin that exists in the body of believers because we don't want to be uncomfortable, or we don't want shame brought on the name of our church or whatever, we rob that situation of exposure to the light, and the church robs the world of the fruit of light. Just think of all the scandals that have been made so much worse 
because brothers and sisters didn't hold people in their midst accountable by shedding a light on the evil that was among them. So of course we shed light on the darkness that can creep into our churches. But even when unbelievers who are living in their own darkened understanding promote sinfulness, we shine light on that situation too. We tell them first and foremost of their folly and the foolishness of their current manner of living, and we hold out the glorious gospel for them to take hold of. But we do this in specific areas too. For those who do not value or even those who take the lives of the unborn, we shed a light on that dark practice by speaking to them the truth that the Bible teaches that all people were created in God's image and so are worthy of being treated with dignity. We boldly proclaim that killing them is taking a life and breaks God's good law. When our pagan leaders live immoral lives, we boldly proclaim to the world and even tell them that they are breaking God's good commands and that they must repent and believe. Along those lines, I want to talk about our purpose in shining light. We don't live our lives of obedience to God with our noses in the air, looking down on those who still live in darkness. That's not pleasing to God because that's pride. And it's incredibly short-sighted on our part. Paul reminds us in verse 8 that we once walked in darkness as well. We were darkness. And the only reason we are light now is what? We are in Christ. And let us take a quick look at the quote here in 14. Um, It says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So just an aside here, we're not exactly sure where this quote comes from. Um, Probably it was a hymn. Definitely the Ephesians knew what he was talking about. Um, Probably a popular hymn in that time, though. But the point is the call of that quote, right? It is to arise from the dead and let Christ shine on you. Who is the actor? Did we raise ourselves from the dead? No. In the same way that we don't transfer ourselves from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life, we do not transfer ourselves from darkness to light. Christ does. Our light does not come from us, but from our unity with Christ by his grace. Just like there is no room for boasting in our salvation from chapter 2, we see in verses 8 and 14 of our text there is no room for boasting in any goodness, righteousness, or light that is in us. That said, we do have to realize that the gospel can be offensive to those who are walking in darkness. So it is possible that even when lovingly sharing light and speaking truth in our best effort to be winsome and loving, it might result in some offense. Just as we once did, those who walk in darkness love darkness. John 3.13 tells us that much, and they reject the light. Making something come to light when we'd rather it be darkness is not pleasant. But even while illuminating the truth we speak, the illuminating truth we speak, sorry, is painful, we have to realize that the goal on our part is to be light that shines in the darkness, not to offend, but to bring God glory. Matthew 5.14 tells us that we are the light of the world, and in verse 16 of that same chapter, it says that we are to let our light shine before others so that they may see see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. When we walk as children of light, we show the world the truth and we shine the hope of the gospel. 
or to say the opposite of that, if we don't walk as children of light, if we are truly who we truly are, if we partner with darkness or don't live as the children of light, we deprive a hopeless and dying world of its only hope, and we deny the world a chance to see our good works and glorify the Father. Because of our union with Christ, until he returns, we are the light of the world. We have in us the hope of the otherwise hopeless world, and we hold it out to them that they may see Christ, repent, and believe. Finally, we have our last section from verses 15 to 21. And here we are told to walk carefully, being filled with the Spirit. We are told in verse 15 that we are to look carefully how we walk. We are to be wise and make the best use of our time during the present evil days. There are many ways that we can walk that would be unwise. Things that waste our time, things that are trivial and unfruitful, things that can lead us down evil paths. Paul is encouraging us to think biblically about the way we spend our days and to plan them wisely. This is followed immediately by the command not to be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We must immerse ourselves in the word so that we can understand, or as verse 10 of our last section says, discern what the will of the Lord is in any given situation. From God's word, which is sufficient to equip us for every good work, as 2 Timothy 2, 3, 15 through 17, sorry, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17 tells us, we can see how we are told to live directly, and we can discern from examples and principles set forth in the Bible um, for things that are not as direct. We must be wise and discerning, because if not, our days are filled with opportunities to squander our time on evil. We then have our next command in verse 18. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. When we are drunk with wine, we are said to be under its influence. We are not in control of our own faculties and often make unwise decisions while drunk. <clears throat> Going around drunk, foolishly seeking their own pleasure. This is how children of disobedience, who practice sinful things that we've been warned against, act. <coughs> We cannot imitate God or be light or live carefully if we are overtaken with alcohol or any other vice. We will look just like the world. We, on the contrary, are to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and our actions ought to display that we are being controlled by Him. We see in the second half of verse 18 that we are called to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Let's look at a parallel passage found in chapter 3 of Colossians that might help us to understand. Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Notice how the words here are very similar, except that the Colossians were told to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly, where this text tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So how can we be filled with the Spirit? One way, maybe even the primary way, is by allowing the word of Christ to dwell in us. If we do this, we will be ready to address one another in the ways that we are commanded. 
And if we were, <clears throat> if we do this, we will be filled with reasons to give thanks to God, which we were commanded to do in verse 20. Giving thanks to God for what he has done, especially what he has done in Christ, is another way that being filled with the Spirit expresses itself. Being filled with the Spirit also expresses itself in the commands of the next couple of verses. We are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is quite different from the crude joking or the foolish talk from verse 4 or empty words of others that we are to ignore from verse 6, isn't it? Those things were from darkness and have no place in the lives of the children of God. The ways in which we are commanded to speak instead are an overflow of being filled with the Spirit. They will build up both the listener and the speaker, which we know is the goal we have from chapter 4. Unlike the list of ways of talking to avoid, these words are proper for children of God. We then close with this final command in verse 21 to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Next week when Courtney teaches, we'll be talking a little bit more in depth about the topic of submission in the specific context of marriage. Then in chapter 6, there's some more submission talk. Um, but this command is actually a broader command for all believers. We each must submit to one another. And what does it mean to submit to one another, especially to do so out of reverence to Christ? This ties back to the beginning of the chapter. What has Christ done for us that we should revere him and even imitate him? He gave himself up for us. Christ's sacrificial love that we open this passage with is still our example. What does it mean to submit to one another in light of his example? In part, it means that we give up our wants, our preferences, our desires, and our lives in order to serve one another. And just like Christ, the thing that motivates us to give ourselves up is sacrificial, giving, others-focused love. As I said in our first discussion um, of the first section, Christ is our example and the reason we are able to love in this sort of way. So what are maybe some practical ways we can submit to one another out of love and reverence for Christ? It can be something as simple as giving up our Friday night family night when a sister has an ex unexpected family emergency and needs someone to make dinner for her kids and watch them. Or maybe not grumbling when your husband chooses a restaurant you don't care for, but instead rejoicing with him on date night. Or abstaining from doing something you know your sister struggles with or that her conscience doesn't allow while she's around. Or it can be something as complicated as being willing to sacrifice your well-being or even your life for the sake of another. When we are faced with choosing our selfish good or giving that up for the good of others, being thankful for Christ's sacrificial gift expresses itself in imitating that very gift. Sisters, as I close tonight, I want to remind you that we are beloved children of God let us be thankful for this and live sacrificially for the sake of one another, shining our light into the darkness he has saved us out of as we do so. Let's pray that God would help us to that end. Let's pray that we indeed walk in the way of our Father, that when people see us and they see our Heavenly Father, they would be amazed at the family resemblance. I'm going to pray.
Heavenly Father, I am thankful for each woman here, and I am thankful that you have brought them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that you have made them lights in the world. Lord, I pray that you would fill them with your spirit, that they would walk in love, that the world would see their light, and that they would want it, and that uh, that my sisters and I and uh, even everyone at Union Lake would just boldly proclaim the hope that we have to this world. And Lord, I pray that um, in doing so, you bring more people into this family, into your family. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.